0: Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel according to St. Mark. It's found in the seventh chapter and begins at the 24th verse. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house where he did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice, but a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon toward the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue." Then, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ef That is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. But the more he ordered them, the more they zealously proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us begin this time in prayer. Most holy Lord God, your son was met with hostility in many of the places he went and even became hostile himself at times. But in those times, he transformed hostility to peace, urging people to show mercy May we model acts of mercy in all our dealings, with the help and strength of Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we pray. Amen. Seems like a long time ago, and it seems like yesterday, but it was back in June of 2009 when the news brought us the story of a man who went into a convenience store, a bodega, in the language of the locals, in Long Island, New York. This man went into that place with the intention of robbing it. It was just before midnight, and the store owner, his name is Mohammed Sohail, was getting ready to lock his establishment up. Sohail is originally from Pakistan. A man who was carrying a baseball bat and wearing a mask entered his store at that late hour. Back then, wearing a mask was not a response to a pandemic. This man had something else on his mind. He wanted all of Sohail's money. So the store owner tried various tactics to stall the man and reduce the threat if he could. But once distracted, Sohail quickly reached under the counter of his establishment and pulled out his rifle, and he aimed it at this robber he ordered the man to drop his baseball bat. And as quickly as the man dropped the bat, and even before it could hit the floor, it seems, he began to beg Sohail for forgiveness. The robber was suddenly in tears. Sohail told a newspaper reporter later, this was a grown man, and he stood before me crying like a baby. The would-be robber began to spill out his story. He said that he was out of work and he was desperate to feed his family. Sohail said, I felt bad for the man. I mean, this wasn't some kid standing in front of me. So Sohail took $40 from his pocket and pushed it across the counter to the man. And then he reached behind him and he took a loaf of bread and presented that to the man as well. This man behind his mask was very grateful. Nevertheless, Sohail made him promise. Made him promise that he would never rob anyone ever again. When you think about it, that wasn't much of a promise for the man to make, given that his robbery career didn't get off to a really great start. Sohail was gracious. He asked the man to wait for a moment. He would go to the back of the store to get a gallon of milk for the man to take home to his children. But when the store owner returned, the man had gone. So so Ha'il did what you should do, he called the police, and the police reviewed the whole incident, including the, the videotape on the security camera in the store. But because the robber wore a mask that day, the police said at the time it would be unlikely that the man would ever be caught. And he never has, to my research, 12 years later. But if he ever is caught, Sohail said at the time, and I imagine it's still true today, he will not press charges. This 12-year-old story illustrates a few things, but among them is that we see here two people changing their actions and changing their intentions based on the central theme of today, which is compassion. We can't know if this would-be robber broke down emotionally as he did because there was a gun pointing at him. And that does happen, trust me. Or if he broke down because he just felt the tremendous weight of of all of his problems and his sufferings just bearing down on him as he committed this desperate act. No matter which way it was or why it is he broke down, somehow these two men came together to a point where they parted on what I guess we could call friendly terms. And we all know that encounter could have turned out much, much worse. Today in our Gospel lesson we heard a pair of stories, stories about compassion that also, like the story of Mr. Sohoil, result in a change of intentions. As we enter this gospel lesson, Jesus had been preaching and teaching and, yes, arguing at a place called Gennesaret. Our gospel reading begins just as Jesus has left that place called Gennesaret, and he travels to this new area called Tyre. Tyre, as well as Gennesaret, were in Gentile territory, away from Jewish lands. And if you're looking for them on a map, they, in the modern map, they are in modern-day Lebanon, Tyre was then a cosmopolitan city. It was a big deal. It was at a crossroads of trade for the Roman Empire. So much passed through that city on its way east or to the west. Now, we're not told. Mark, the gospel writer, doesn't give us a hint as to why Jesus went to Tyre. Maybe he was tired. Okay, a sympathy giggle would be appreciated. But seriously, maybe he was tired. He'd spent his time arguing and scolding religious authorities in Gennesaret. That tends to take the energy out of you. Perhaps Jesus just needed a break. Or maybe he saw an evangelical opportunity in this land of the Gentiles near Tyre. He could tell people there about the one true God. Or maybe both reasons were on his mind. We don't really know. But all we know with certainty is that Jesus went to that place. He felt compelled to do so, and it was out of his way to go there. Once at Tyre, he goes into a house, we're told, and he tries to keep his presence and his identity a secret. Jesus appears to be looking for some quiet. He's looking for a place where he can have some Sabbath time, a place that, and he does this in in Tyre, which ironically, isn't Jewish and therefore doesn't observe the Sabbath. But nonetheless, Jesus appears to want a sabbatical. I can identify with that, and maybe you can too on this Labor Day weekend. We need just a few moments to take time away from it all. And Jesus was apparently of that mind as well. But even in this place, in the land of the Gentiles, somehow these people had not only heard about Jesus, but apparently they'd figured out what he looks like, too. Now, consider how remarkable that is. There were no websites for them to consult. No Instagram or Facebook or YouTube, none of that. There wasn't even the nightly news on TV, for those of us who rely on that still. How did they come to recognize Jesus? How would they know, especially the woman that approaches him? How can this Gentile woman from Tyre know to find Jesus and recognize him when she does? That alone seems to be either a miracle or the direct action of the Spirit. Could it be, could it be that a member of Jesus' entourage went to a local pub and was bragging with whom he was traveling? You know, I'm with Jesus. And then somebody lost a bar bet and told the woman? Who knows? Who knows? But somehow, she does. Anyway, this woman from Tyre enters the home where Jesus has secreted himself away. And she flings herself down at Jesus' feet. Now, the Gospel version I read for you sounds like she just kneeled down. It Sounds like a nice, religious, churchy thing to do. It's not the way it is in the Greek. It's a violent throwing of herself on the floor. She is desperate and and just beside herself as she approaches the Lord. She has few inhibitions. She has placed herself totally at Jesus' disposal. And the reason for all of this is obvious. She has a daughter who the Gospel tells us has been infected with an unclean spirit. Now, what do we know about unclean spirits? Uh, we know they encountered Jesus in a variety of forms, and, and Mark's gospel has a number of these sorts of encounters. Each one a little bit different from the others. But an unclean spirit had a different definition for an old, or excuse me, a New Testament gospel writer two thousand years ago than it does for one of us today. We, we scarcely have a meaning for it. So, in order to understand what an unclean spirit is for a gospel writer, let's let's assume that there must have been something called clean spirits. Otherwise, how would you know which one is which? You need the comparison. Now, we aren't told a single word about clean spirits in the Bible. That's probably because these are not enemies of of health and wholeness or, or God's shalom intended for God's people. Folks possessed, in contrast to that which we can imagine to be clean, folks possessed by the unclean spirits are simply not well. It seems that unclean spirits are those which want to drive their hosts to either bizarre conduct or unhealthy or inappropriate behavior. People with an unclean spirit are typically a danger to themselves or a danger to others. Today, if someone were to be among us and, and thought to be, have an unclean spirit, we probably have a different diagnosis and take that person for psychiatric treatment. Speaking of which, over the years, I've visited a number of patients who were under psychiatric care. Most of these people seem more open to believe in the supernatural than you or I or the people in the general public. Of course, it can be said that people under psychiatric care have reality distorted in their brains. But there are other possibilities, too. I ask you, are the mentally ill, as we call them? more disposed to things spiritual because they can see and hear things that are not real and because they are more apt not to discount than the supernatural when it appears to them? Or is the spiritual part of these people's brains seeking help, seeking help that can only come through God? I don't know the answer to my own questions. What we do know is that in the biblical account, the relatives and friends of people possessed by unclean spirits believed sincerely, strongly, Gentile and Jew alike, that Jesus can and would cure them. We might write off these stories as people with modern-day diagnosis like epilepsy because some of the symptoms fit what we know that disease to bring on, or mental illness of one sort or another because the symptoms fit those diagnoses as well. But Jesus, whatever the diagnosis was, Jesus did something with a word or the laying on of a hand that made those things disappear. He did those things, and it became known became very well-known. Otherwise, we wouldn't have these prolific and persistent stories of his actions in the Bible we hold all these many millennia, or two millennia later. Now, we can speculate until the cows come home on the diagnosis of these possessed people described for us in Scripture, but one thing is is without doubt, and that is Jesus cured them. And this non-Jewish woman knows that this Jesus... She doesn't address him as such, but this Jewish rabbi can cure her daughter. And that's why she's flinging herself at his feet. She doesn't come there and just sort of ask him. It's not like a favor. She begs Jesus, tearfully and emotionally, to remove this demon from her daughter. And then in one of the most shocking exchanges in the entire Bible, Jesus dismisses this woman at first with an insult, and that's what it is. You can't soft-soap it. Jesus doesn't seem to want to deal with this Greek, this Gentile woman, or her daughter at first. He says, the children must be fed first. It's not right to take the children's food and feed it to the puppies. And what he's saying in the slang of his day is that Jews referred to the Gentile as dogs, and the children were the children of God. So he's there first to serve the children, not the dogs. But the woman's reply is quick and it's sharp. And in the only example in the entire Bible where Jesus loses an argument to anyone, this woman has the the prevailing argument. This Gentile woman has the prevailing argument. She says, even the mutts eat the children's crumbs. Please throw me a crumb. And in this she exhibits great faithfulness. And then, in the next shock, as the entire attitude of the exchange changes, Jesus does not get angry with this woman's criticism of his witticism. Instead, he seems to be impressed, perhaps even moved by what this woman has said. And he tells her immediately that her daughter was well. And as the woman returned home that day, she found that her daughter was well indeed. Remarkable. But Mark's pace keeps going quickly. Jesus hits the road again, and he takes a curious route. Somehow he decides to go to the other side of the Galilee region, to the Decapolis, which is another Gentile territory. It's not the straight way to where Jesus is eventually going. He's going around the lake the long way. And as he gets there, somehow he's well-known once again. So then, some people who had heard about Jesus bring a man who could not possibly have heard about Christ. No way. How could he have heard? He was deaf. And he was mute. He was unable to speak. People want Jesus to come and simply touch him. And they were convinced that only with, with only a touch, this man would be healed. That's all that was necessary from Jesus. Now picture what Jesus does. This is strange, and again, it sounds so placid as I read it for you a little bit ago. He sticks his fingers in the man's ears, and this isn't a gentle Q-tippy thing. He's in there. There's a strength and a purpose to what he does that we find in the Greek. And then he takes spittle from his mouth and puts it on this man's tongue. I bet you'll never see a modern EMT do that. You know, especially in this day of COVID-19. And then as he does that, Jesus prays a single word in Greek, or in Aramaic, excuse me, the, the language of the streets is what he uses. And at once, this man could then hear and speak plainly. I've got a few uh, acquaintances who are speech pathologists. Somebody who has grown to adulthood and has never heard and never been able to speak to suddenly speak is an absolute impossibility for other than the miraculous. Then Jesus turns to the crowd around him and he asks them all, "Let's keep this on the QT. Don't tell anybody." Now it's human nature, isn't it, that the bigger a secret is and the more we're told to keep quiet the more we want to go and blab it to everybody we can find, right? And that's exactly what happens. These people don't listen to Jesus' instruction. And then, as a result, Jesus' reputation begins to just explode in these Gentile areas. These Gentiles tell everyone, it's like broadcasting in the ancient world, they tell everyone how amazing Jesus' healings are. Even the guy who was once deaf and dumb goes out and now proclaims the good news. Now The Bible is great for what it says and it's inspiring and it it carries so much that we should know. But occasionally the Bible carries meaning in its silence. So I ask you about this. Did you notice that in both of these healing stories that took place in Gentile territory that not one person acknowledge Jesus in anything like religious terms. Didn't call him rabbi, nothing, nothing, son of God, nothing, not once. They know Jesus' reputation as a healer, and apparently that's all they care about. There's no conversion of hearts and minds here from one religion to another. Christ simply comes and he meets the human need where he finds it. Jesus, to use the words of the woman in the first story, decides to throw the Gentiles a few crumbs. We could even say, and I think objectively we should say, that the Greek woman, in her own fashion, made a convert of Jesus. Once he was opened up by her words, he then went and opened up the Gentile man. Each of these healings happen as a result of the requests of others. And so we see the utility and the power of intercessory prayer. The power of asking Jesus to heal those who suffer. To bring people out of ugly and awful conditions through the power of Jesus. I state to you this morning that compassion is what these stories is all about. And compassion is something more than that modern word that gets thrown around the news a lot, empathy. Compassion is acting on empathy. Compassion is reaching out to someone you would never guess you would reach out to touch, whether you touch them spiritually or physically. Compassion is Jesus' response to people who wish to have an end to their suffering. Compassion is a mark of the kingdom of God come near. I've been asked a number of times, even as I was on vacation, which ended a week ago today, how I was advising others to respond to the terrible events which had happened in the last ten days that we've all seen on the news and we've all been shaken by. My first thought about those ten days and and what began them is that the bombing at the Karzai Airport in Kabul, Afghanistan certainly caught my attention and it likely caught your attention those ten days ago. But what I'll call evil spirits have infected and affected the situation and the people in that region of the world for a very long time. And they're not alone in this, but it's certainly been the case for a very long time. Looking at their untenable situation through the longer lens of history, we see that adding to their pain that people from outside of their region, peoples from other parts of the globe have brought even more pain and more suffering from their distant parts of the world to Afghanistan over these many, many years of conflict there. We might be inclined to draw an analogy by saying that Afghanistan is plagued by evil spirits, both from within and from without. And when we do so, we are drawing a comparison with a Syrophoenician woman and her ailing daughter. Or we might say that that particular part of the world, nicknamed the graveyard of empires, is utterly dysfunctional. When we do this, we might begin to see that People who live in Afghanistan is, are something like the man who could not function normally in, in the second story Mark gives us this morning, the man who could neither speak nor hear, and so could not function normally. Either way, you wish to describe that which you have seen and heard over the past ten days. Notice in our gospel that it was Jesus and it was Jesus alone who drove the demons from the Syrophoenician woman's daughter and it was only Jesus who could heal the deaf mute. Christ's disciples were beside him and near to him both times and our savior did not assign the, the needed healing work to them. He took it upon himself. So then, as a modern disciple of Jesus Christ, And seeing the world situation, you ask yourself, what then am I to do? Am I left to complain about this situation to my neighbor across the backyard fence, but otherwise do nothing in the name of Christ? My answer to that line of question is that you do not have the power to perform the miraculous. Nor do I. Nor have you ever met anybody who could. You, sisters and brothers, are not God. Each of us works within the limits of his or her own knowledge and the God-given talents to advance creation to a condition a bit closer to God's intended perfection. But not one of us can do the miraculous work of Almighty God. What has been given to you and given to me is to exercise compassion and mercy whenever and wherever we find the need arise. We feed the hungry, we clothe the naked, we act as eyes for the blind and ears for the deaf, and we even go out to give a glimpse of freedom to those who are imprisoned. In the name of Christ, all of us, you and I, we go out, we go out in the name of Christ to touch one life at a time. When we look deeply at the miracles of Jesus themselves, we see in each case that our Lord reached out in compassion to those people who have been affected, and you heard of two of them this morning. Then, even though everybody was told to be quiet about what they saw Jesus do, somebody went out and told the story. Consider, we heard both of these stories 2,000 years after the fact. And we heard them because somebody told them and because these stories have the power to change the direction of our lives and to change the direction of the lives of others. If you and I and the others who hear this passage from Mark's gospel go out and live compassionate, merciful lives, if we truly become the people who reflect the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ, how might the world, every bit of it, change for the better? How great might it become? How glorious might it be? Again, here's a question I can't answer on my own because the possibilities for change given God's love acting through you is too great for my mind to even conjure. But one thing I am certain of is that this world and its people can and will be continually and increasingly changed for the better when, beca- when compassion becomes not just our daily mission, but becomes our way of life. When compassion is plentiful among God's people, even the graveyard of empires may one day become the playground of God's children. Let us pray once again. Gracious God and giver of all good gifts, give us the gift of compassion, through which we may show by our actions the marks of your kingdom so that all the world may see, be changed, and be amazed. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.